Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides to this journey, my co-host Phil Cly, author of the novel Missionaries, our crack producers Alex Brooklyn and Adam Camara of Ragged Media, our guest today, the writer Scott Beauchamp, and me, Jake Siegel. May you continue to be a person. Okay, so for our manifesto today, we have Scott's, how shall I put it, uh, a memoir of sorts, Did You Kill Anyone? Re-Understanding My Military Experience as a Critique of Modern Culture. A memoir, an elegiac memoir, a critique of uh, modern American culture and uh, maybe of modernity itself. Uh, but we'll get into all that. And then the art is Alistair MacLeod's short story, The End of the Summer. So, Scott, before we... Uh, the closing down of summer. What's it called? The Closing Down of Summer. Closing Down of Summer. Obviously a more literary title than The End of Summer. <laughs> why, why use one short word when you could use two longer words? That's how you know he's the, he's the pro. Um, all right. Scott, I, I want to turn this over to you, um, but I'm going to do my best to give like a two-line distillation that is just cribbing from your book to give listeners a kind of general sense of what this is about. And I think what it's about is not the question, did you kill anyone, which you say is the wrong question or the inessential question to ask if you're trying to understand what the modern military experience is about. The essential question is, did you miss it? And I have to say, I mean, that's exactly how I felt. I felt both that that was the essential question and that I regretted not having the opportunity to answer it at length because no one ever asked me that. And uh, so I, I was pleased and gratified to see it treated at length and um, I, I think quite profoundly. So you were an infantryman. Um, you did two deployments and your book, this book is, is you – I guess, trying to figure out what that all means. Why don't you tell us a bit about how it came about? Yeah, well, um, well, thanks for having me on. Um, it, you know, it's just a fantastic podcast and I'm a regular listener, so it's really cool to, to, to be on. Um, I, yeah, I suppose the, the idea for the book, um, came out of my experiences, um, leaving the army and moving, uh, after I left the army, moving directly to, to New York, um, a place that I, you know, had only been on vacation. I wasn't before I had been raised in, in Missouri and, and, and Georgia. And, um, and I kind of began to slowly understand when I came to New York that moving from the army to New York was like a bigger cultural shift for me than moving from, you know, Missouri to and joining the army. Um, and that was really sort of like, um, I guess the impetus for writing this is sort of trying to figure that out. Um, why it wasn't only that, like, you know, I felt like my experiences were misunderstood or not, 
you know, uh, not necessarily valued by the kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, larger uh, culture, but I, I felt like there wasn't even like, we weren't even speaking the same language and there wasn't even like the same frame of reference, uh, right. in which to misunderstand me. So uh, that's kind of where the book comes from. Yeah. I thought this was just a absolutely fantastic book and it's very much not only of interest to those, um, you know, with interest in military things. Um, in fact, maybe primarily it's, it's, it's about something else entirely because, uh, you know, military writing, it often gets sort of, you know, the focus is often on the war that you're fighting. Whereas the emphasis here is on the ways of being <laughs> that, um, that, that you're engaged in while you're in the military, the way that the military is organized along a sort of kind of older structures of understanding how human beings function and make meaning and make community. Right. And so the book is organized around, uh, you know, things that are really critical to the military, like, you know, each chapter, you know, honor, tradition, hierarchy, community, ritual, and of course the extremely important boredom and smoking. Right. And, um, uh, those chapters are both superb by the way. Um, and some of these things are, you know, sort of less kind of narrowly intellectual. Right. Um, and, and since ritual is maybe one of the, the most obvious ones, it might be a good place to start there. And of course the military starts with an initiation ritual, you know, you're, your hair is shorn, you go through basic, and then you describe this really intense experience that you had um, when you finished uh, training as an infantryman. Do, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so at the end of basic training, um, you do a final field exercise, and then you take a, a night road march up um, a small hill, they call it a mountain, but it's, it's, it's really just a large hill. Um, and, um, I went to basic training in Fort Benning, Georgia. Um, and it ends at the top of the hill with, um, a tiki torch ceremony, uh, where you drink something called infantryman's grog, which I'm, I think is just like Hawaiian punch and, and Gatorade. Uh, and there's a, first sergeant gives a speech and it's very dramatic and, and you're, um, you're, uh, you know, uh, you officially become an infantryman, like th- sort of like the ser- through the ceremony. Um, and it was just, you know, I think at the, at the time it was powerful. And, um, but while I was in the military, I, I think I kind of took it as sort of a matter of course, because as you guys know, like the military is just full of, ceremonies so it's not it didn't yeah. it didn't feel that um out of place and it wasn't until i you know became a civilian that i i realized that i i kind of did miss um that way of of structuring a human experience that there was something very it's valuable the, in it that that i felt like wasn't being recognized by the larger culture there's a bit where you're describing this night march that you do um and you write, any lingering cynicism I might have been carrying toward the pomp and circumstances of military, the military had momentarily dissipated. I felt empty and new, freed from irony and suffused with purpose, the vault of the sky felt within reach. And then, you know, 
you go through and you describe this experience you just talked about where you sing the infantry song and reciting the infantry, uh, infantry, infantryman creed. And you write, the song and creed were not perfunctory. They took on the power of incantation, simultaneously affirming our new status as infantrymen and conjuring some concrete collective manifestation of our identity. The drill sergeants spoke to us from the front of our formation. Our first sergeant began explaining the significance of the ceremony and emphasizing how irrevocably our lives were changed. We were new men, shorn of our civilian identities and reborn into a brotherhood that seemed to stretch back not just to the Battle of the Bulge in Yorktown, but into the distant and half-forgotten roots of civilization itself. We were initiates into a tribe that seemed to stand adjacent to historical time strengthened by its detachment from what we had left behind in the civilian world. And after our platoon sergeant spoke to us, reiterating the liminal nature of the event and the chasm now separating us from our former lives, he embraced each one of us, <coughs> each of us one by one, pledging loyalty unto death. It was the most profound and mystical experience of my life. And then you write, it's also something that sounds absurd at best when explained to civilians. In the worst case, it sounds quasi-fascist. Torches, blood, ahistorical renderings of identity, and of course, the problematic nature of ritual itself. What is the problematic nature of ritual itself? Um, I, I mean, I, I would say that, you know, uh, judging by the standards of, of our culture, I would say the two major problems are inauthenticity, maybe, and con mm -hmm. control. Um, Anything where you sort of, there's a kenosis, like a draining out of personality. I think, I think we tend to be kind of wary of that. Um, by, by uh, because, that you mean you know, like, like de-individuation? Right? Yeah, yeah. A sort of like, yeah, like a depersonalization kind of, um, which isn't quite exact. Obviously, it's more complicated than that. You're not, you know, I still existed as like an individual individual person with my own personality like you know after the ceremony and during the ceremony too but um but what it represents i think is sort of a, a de-individuation and becoming enmeshed in this greater thing i think i think i don't know maybe there's like a borg-like feel i think to to for people um who aren't familiar with things like it uh yeah, it's doing things to that. The Borg-like <laughs> feel is like the explicitly sinister element, I think, right? So when you say that yeah. right. the tiki torches and the drill sergeants have a kind of quasi-fascistic air for the uninitiated, that's the Borg-like feel. But even more intuitively or, or viscerally, I think people just think it's like cheesy and weird and um, yeah, yeah. like gauche. You know, like maybe right. they wouldn't say that, but that's what they feel is that it's gauche. And the reason why they feel it's gauche is both because it is uh, it's dismissive of their individual personality in exactly the way mm -hmm. you just pointed out, which feels to them like, why would I possibly want to relinquish the genius of myself? <laughs> and also because it's explicitly irrational is not the right word, but it's explicitly sort of non-secular rational, right? Insofar yeah. as it is communicating through symbolic meaning in a way that is experiential. It's not syllogistic. It's not deductive. 
it's purely experiential, or, or if not purely, then at least ineradicably experiential. And I think people in the first place, they just look at it and they think like, ah, oh, this is cheesy. I'm above this, you know? Right. There's a great quote from the book where you say, ritual is a way of understanding, a way of knowing that bypasses the rational mind. It's a knowing with the body, with action, with location, and with a will to believe. The post-Enlightenment emphasis on a Cartesian split between mind and body devalued the power of ritual and popular consciousness simply by extracting our actions from the ontological ground of being, which would imbue them with transcendent meaning. Um, and then... Foucault differentiated philosophy from spirituality by writing that in spirituality, the subject carries out the necessary transformations on himself in order to have access to truth, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's this kind of um, distrust of that and a sort of more weight put on things that are sort of dissectable with a critical intelligence, right? Um, I think of in in Norman Rush's mating, um, the character who sort of hates religion uh, argues that the you, know, you should look at religion not by its beliefs, but by how much repetition it expects of its adherence, right? Like the sheer numbers of times per day or week that you have to read a text or attend a service. Um, uh, Built-up churches were engines to enforce repetition. Repetition is what we use to put a child to sleep. The reason for repetition was to make our minds sleep, right? And I think that's what we sort of think of as happening with ritual, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, my thing is there are times in our life when we understand that ritual is deeply important. The most obvious one of this is a funeral, right? Um, I've had conversations with sort of non, non-lever uh, friends who have found difficulty at the time of the funeral um, when it comes with when there's not a sort of ready-made ritual structure in place for how to handle that death, the military does a sort of secular version, right? There's a, there's a codified way that the military handles memorial services, which is tremendously powerful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at moments like that, at moments of, of death of, of extreme importance, we understand that ritual is deeply, deeply important. And sort of, there's a communal and deeply personal need, right? But outside of those sort of crisis points, we want to push it away um, because we think that we're sort of, um, competent, rational intelligences. My, my, um, uh, sort of moving through the world, making our own choices. My sort of sense of things is that like, there are rituals that you choose that you enter into knowingly. And in the military, there are a whole lot of them, right? Mm-hmm. Religions have rituals that you sort of consciously engage in, uh, as a way of reshaping your life. I think that when you turn your back on that, my, sense of things is not so much that we sort of give up on ritual, right. Uh, or on ritualistic type things that, that, that form us in ways that are happening, um, outside of that kind of like dissecting critical intelligence, but rather that sort of, we, um, unthinkingly engage in rituals that are often sort of created for us by modern society, right. Sometimes by corporations. Yeah, no, I I think rituals, you know, inescapable. And I think that, um, this sort of the idea that, you know, uh, you're somehow, uh, I don't know that, that it's cheesy that you're somehow above it. I, I feel like a lot of that is, um, like you say, it's like, um, it's just because these kinds of rituals are, are, are thinking about ritual in such a, such a, uh, explicit way. Yeah. Um, 
is kind of is not you know it's just not the business model for a, a consumer society you um you know you you sort of there's a there's a lot of money to be made in this sort of idea that um uh well the idea of authenticity first of all but also the idea that you're a alone individual who um is in complete control and can do everything yourself. I mean, because I think, you know, rituals are necessary when we realize that we ourselves are not enough to do X, right. Or to experience X. Like we don't, you know, rituals, that's why I think rituals are so often communal. Um, And even when they're not, there's this assumption that you are not, I mean, either transcending yourself or um, avoiding, you know, the anchor of your personality, I guess. Um, but I think we live in a, a society where, you know, there's such an emphasis placed on personality because that's, you know, that's what's for sale. You know, there's, um, when, when I was married, um, I wanted to do the, <laughs> the standard wedding vows, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't want to like write my own, um, not out of laziness, <laughs> right? Um, uh, I thought that, and it's not that I think there's anything wrong with the idea of people, you know, writing their own vows, obviously. Um, but like doing the sort of the standard wedding vow felt right to me in a way, um, that wasn't so much about like a a kind of assertion of my own individuality, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of, one of the, the, the ways I see this, so my, my wife's grandparents are very religious Catholics, right? And religious in a kind of identifiably Latin American way, right? They're Colombian. They live in Medellin. They have a huge baby Jesus statue in their house. It's like four times the size of a normal baby. And they pray over us at every parting and they make circles of protection. And, and they want to send me a sort of blessed cross as protection from the evil eye, which I keep in, in my desk. Um, you know, so don't try to <laughs> put the evil eye on me, man. It's not going to work. Um, and the general reaction of most educated New Yorkers to stuff like that would be to find it amusing or quaint or maybe endearingly irrational, right? But you spend a lot of time with them. And what is very clear is that there's a rather complex form of piety that is offered them, a rich and supple sort of symbolic language in which they can respond to all sorts of, of kind of circumstances with a set of concrete actions whose meaning and import is part of a a shared system of values extending back into the past, um, uh, but also kind of cross-culturally within the broader Catholic community, mm-hmm. right? And so um, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a shared kind of system of meaning that's actually really powerful and creates a sort of series of daily and weekly rituals to help structure your life in ways that engage your intellect, but also operate at a level that has nothing to do with thought process at all, right? And it kind of trains your unconscious self to react in a particular way to the varieties of experience of life, right? Um, and I think the military is very consciously forming people through rituals. And, um, you know, and your your book talks about how that functions, and they're doing it to create warfighters, right? But the more general critique of modern society is like, okay, in order to do something which seems very, very utilitarian, right, which is win in war, they're doing things that seem to the overeducated very, very primitive, right? Mm-hmm. And they're doing them because they're extremely important to human beings, right? 
whether you think you're above it or not. And so what does that mean about how we sleepwalk our way through modern society? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, I think that's really interesting. I, I think that in another chapter, I think it's the chapter on, uh, on leadership. Um, that's a great I, chapter. Oh, thank you. I, I mentioned that, um, someone said to me once, um, you don't need leadership to get people to eat donuts. Um, (laughs) and I think it's, it's true with ceremony. Also, you don't need ceremony to, uh, buy something online, although that can become right. It's own ceremony, but you, I mean, you don't need a ritual to, 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 um, to sort of do these mundane things where you don't feel as if anything's on the line. Um, and then, you know, like you said before, we have these like moments in our lives that are punctuated with, with great meaning, funerals and, and weddings and stuff. And all of a sudden it becomes abundantly clear that we, how important ritual is. Um, right. but I, I think we've, you know, um, the reason why ritual is so important in the military is because, um, the job that you're doing, uh, so much is on the line. And, um, and so it's, it's necessary. Yeah. The, the, the bit from on the donuts, you don't need leadership to get people to eat donuts and you don't, but one obviously can't live off donuts alone. And we also owe each other more than just donuts. We owe each other a certain amount of sacrifice that doesn't always naturally issue forth freely from us. And then later in that uh, same chapter on hierarchy, my memories exist in possessive plural because of course we were always together but also because all of our activities were for each other. And this, I think, was at the heart of what I came to understand about leadership when it's at its best and functioning as it should. It exists to make certain that we exist for each other. The business of survival, especially in a war zone, isn't easy. It isn't eating donuts. And leadership authority is the method by which we most efficiently serve each other. So what's interesting here is that, you know, there's a paradoxical element to this that I think is, it runs through a lot of what you're finding in the military experience, Scott. And I'm thinking also of there's a great image in here. You're talking about being on leave in Prague with some buddies from your unit, and you're looking at them in their civilian clothes, like getting drunk, carousing on the town, whatever. And it strikes you that they're actually depersonalized in their civilian clothes in a way. There's something that seems um, – almost rote and uh, like less than less than true to who they actually are when you see them going through like trying to act out this role of drunken soldiers in Prague, which I'm sure they took to with real verve, don't get me wrong, but I mean I I could relate to that very directly. I mean I remember having had that feeling and how strange it is to see friends who you know like by their last name or their nickname in uniform and then to see them out of uniform and feel like they've lost some essential character of the, of themselves. But I hadn't fully realized the importance of leadership before I was in Iraq. And it's maybe that seems like something very obvious that leaders would be especially important at war in the army. But I think I had absorbed the kind of implicit premise from technological society that these complex systems sort of attend to themselves 
and that what was the military but another complex technological system. And so, yeah, of course, like you wanted a good leader, but that was basically maybe kind of a ceremonial function or more about morale and really like the business of soldiering, the business of war was going to carry on either way. And I found that that was absolutely not the case and that in fact, um, leadership made all the difference and that units often came to kind of resemble their leadership in a way that, you know, you know, people say like a dog looks like its owner or an owner looks like its dog. And, you know, Scott makes the point, I think it's very apt that good leadership, a lot of it is about getting people to realize these sorts of mutual obligations that like good leadership, you know, it's not the scene from the war movie where like you're deep in combat and the, platoon leader or platoon sergeant is like barking out orders to, to direct action in a very kind of instrumental way. Oh, it's a lot better than we usually do. Uh, All right, thumbs up. Ready, guys? Let's or- do this. Leroy Jenkins! Oh, my God, he just ran in. Save him. Oh, geez, stick it clean. Oh, geez. Let's go, let's go. Let's go. A lot of the time, good leadership is about modeling and invoking a common purpose that gets people to do things for themselves, really. But what you realize in that also is that it's not everyone is a good leader. It's a highly individual, the the high functioning of this communal purpose is not, you know, inspiring that is not something in which all people are equally endowed. And so it's not the kind of individualism that we think of as being indicative of good leadership, which is like combat bravery and kind of outsized valor or the ability to like get men to do what you want at the second you command them to do it. It's not quite that, though certainly there's an element to that. But, you know, it's it's more about kind of creating this collective, cohesive thing. And yet that is itself something that is not evenly distributed and that, you know, some people are much better at that than others. That is an individual thing that not everybody shares is what I was getting at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also what are the qualities that are, that are essential to good leadership, right? I mean, you know, the, the, there's a kind of moral character to it, right? It's not just about, it's not just about technical knowledge. There's a, there's a great bit in, in, um, in life and fate where these two scientists are talking, one of whom is doing work that's going to be critical for the Soviet, um, nuclear program. Right. Um, and you know, one of them says to the other, you say man will be able to look down on God, but what if he also becomes able to look down on the devil? What if he eventually surpasses him? You say life is freedom. Is that what people in the camps think? What if the life expanding through the universe should use its power to create a slavery still more terrible than your slavery of inanimate matter? Do you think this man of the future will surpass Christ in his goodness? That's the real question. How will the power of this omniscient 
uh, omnipresent and omniscient being benefit the world if he is still endowed with our own fatuous self-assurance and animal egotism, our class egotism, our race egotism, our state egotism, and our personal egotism? What if he transforms the whole world into a galactic concentration camp? What I want to know is, do you believe in the evolution of kindness, morality, mercy? Is man capable of evolving in that way? And then later, science today should be entrusted to men of spiritual understanding, to prophets and saints. But instead, it's been left to chess players and scientists. They don't know what they're doing. Wow, that's yeah, I object to the lumping together of chess players and scientists. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> very bad. I apologize to the chess players on vastly. No, I'm surprised that Grossman would write that. It seems like an un-Russian conflation, but maybe I just don't know the Russian soul well enough. <laughs> Scott, I want to ask you something. The look, this is not just a book about uh, the recuperation of kind of older values that have been lost in modern consumer culture, right? It's not just a book about the. Um, regaining or relearning the importance of ritual and of of uh, boredom, um, which is another way of saying you know silence and reflection mm-hmm. um, and leadership and, and hierarchy, etc. It's specifically about relearning that and recuperating that in the military at war, mm-hmm. right? I wonder, do you think you would have found this had you enlisted in? Um, 1995, right? Could you, is this something inherent in the military, This, or is this something that's only in the military at war? I, I tend to think the latter, but I, I wonder how you feel about that. No, I think that's a great question. Um, because something that someone pointed out to me about the book is that I don't actually talk or about or describe combat all that often. Uh, it's sort of like um, the backdrop to my military experience, but I but I think it definitely affected the kind of military experience I had. I'm mean, obviously a military at war is very different from a peacetime military, so I think the sort of things that I that I write about in the book um, they take on heightened importance. I think during a time of war, um, for reasons that are probably pretty obvious. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know if I would have found the same same experiences or would have found the experiences charged with as much I don't know energy I guess as as I did uh, serving in the army during wartime, um, which isn't to say that you know you can't have these experience these kinds of things in in, in other contexts, which I definitely think you can, um, but I I think they're rare. Um, and they, they tend to sort of, um, you know, yeah, but I mean, this is the thing, right? They're rare and without forcing you to, you know, deliver your like final judgments on, um, American politics I think you know, Scott, I know you, I know you're writing well enough to say, I think you've been critical of American foreign policy over the last 20 years, let us say. Right. And yeah. I find myself in a position where I've never been more cynical about – I don't even think cynical is the right word. I mean that suggests a kind of like um, normative or, or emotional quality. I, I think that the military is another one 
not so much different at the higher level from other corrupt and failing bureaucracies in America. Um, and I also think that the conduct of the war on terror was disastrous, um, not least of all for American democracy. And I, I feel that most of all now as I watch the apparatus of the war on terror being redirected as a domestic operation against American citizens. I, I um, And as I, I watched like the long inability to end the Afghan war, which I, I'm glad is finally coming to an end, um, though I, I hope it, you know, I, I hope it's handled the right way. All I, of that I have my skepticism about that, but yeah, yeah, all that being said, I look back at my military experience no less fondly. I, I still feel it was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. I, you know, fond is maybe not quite the right word, but very much like finding in it what Scott describes. And I, you know, I can find ways to explain that and to rationalize that and to, to kind of smooth out those contradictions. But finally, what I find is that like, there's an inner purpose built into this that is related to the, the ritualistic actions and the end towards which those actions are directed, which is war, that is not necessarily so much about um, – the purpose of the war, though, there are limits to that. Uh, but I, I think it's interesting to it to to consider that that seems not to have diminished these higher values for you, Scott. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, well, I I think that um, the the sort of bureaucracy that you're talking about. Um, for me, at least, I don't, I don't know what your experience is like, but for me, like actually on the ground, it felt pretty far away. Um, yeah, I had no direct experience of it while I was in, like none at all. Yeah, I mean, like every once in a while, um, a name I recognize would would visit wherever we were, and we'd have to pull security, and that was like the extent of, you know, my uh, <laughs> my interactions with any sort of like. Uh, Washington bureaucracy was running the war. So it it just felt very removed from it. It felt very different. There's a great CJ Shivers piece. Um, She was a fantastic war journalist um, with the times from when Donald Rumsfeld resigned. And there's like a Marine unit that's like staked out in this Iraqi, Iraqi guy's house. And they're upstairs and the owner of the house is downstairs watching television and he learns that Rumsfeld has resigned and he runs upstairs to tell the Marines. He's like, Rumsfeld has resigned. And one of the Marines goes, who's Rumsfeld? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like the exact corollary of the, you know, the famous like interviewing Afghan villagers who are like, what's nine 11. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but okay. That's all true. Right. Like granted. And yet you're now Scott personalizing this thing that is supposed to be tied to this higher set of meaning. Like in other words, yeah, okay. The bureaucracy was remote from you personally as it was from me, I should say. I mean, the closest I got to experiencing this was when I was in Afghanistan and towards the end of my deployment in Afghanistan, I just, I should say towards the middle of my deployment in Afghanistan, I just started to realize like I was just, it was it, everything we were doing was deceitful in some way. Like 
the reports yeah. we were sending up about the progress of the Afghan National Security Forces were dishonest. The purpose for us sending up those reports was dishonest. Like mm-hmm. it, and the extent of that, which I had maybe for a decade, even after my experiences in Iraq, been condemning, but condemning as like aberrant and a and a corruption, I started to realize what I started to realize was a constitutive of the purpose of the war was that was the purpose of the war in some sense. Right. And, and I can't unthink that, you know, it's like not as I've only seen it more confirmed. So all of which is to say, yeah, this was remote from me personally. It was remote from you personally. And nevertheless, do you not feel it haunting what you're writing about? I don't want, I don't mean to lead the witness here, but <laughs> I wonder no, no, I know. I yeah, I get what you mean. My, during my second deployment, um, we were in a pretty rural part of the Diala province, um, not too far from the Iranian border, and um, we were. Patro- I mean, there was there were like not even. I think there might have been one small village in the area we patrolled, which we rarely saw, and so we were just on these back roads, and we had to keep patrolling them because um, IEDs were being implanted in uh, there because we were patrolling them. Um, so, you know, getting caught in that sort of circular logic, um, it was, um, it was, it was horrible. It was horrible for everyone. But at the same time, I think that the things that I mentioned in the book, uh, still remained like, um, the things that helped us get through, (laughs) you know, all the ways in which we were being, um, used or misused um, by a distant bureaucracy. And I think, you know, you've mentioned before on this podcast, um, what you feel is the beginning of maybe a new like political dispensation, uh, in America, maybe, um, maybe even more broadly than that. But, um, to me, I felt like, I feel like these sorts of experiences, um, you know, sort of matter, um, or, or will matter uh, in the, within this new political dispensation because I feel like you know there's there's so often um, you know there's this really tight dialectic of a conversation of like you know this is you know people just sort of react to each other and and I think what I wanted to write about was something that sort of got outside of that uh, completely yeah and and that's kind of how I was trying to think about my own experiences too there was sort of like this. What was what we were doing good or bad? It's like, well, I think, you know, um, both. Um, it's, you know. No, I, I agree with that entirely. And I think you've succeeded in escaping it. And I should say that like, in formal terms, I think a great strength of the book is that you don't get into it. Right. And you don't caveat it. And you you don't, not only do you not try to like, reconcile this, but you don't make excuses for not trying to reconcile. I think that is a, I think that makes the work much stronger, but there is a larger devilish circularity, which is not just about was the war good or bad. And I agree with you both. Right. But there is the point that like the values that you see as being preserved through the military that are, contrasted with or in in some sense in conflict with the values of the civilian society to which you returned that 
contrast exists within a relationship within which the military is essential to preserving the civilian values. Mm-hmm. So the the exploits of the military are not undertaken to uh, to to expand its values into the larger society. They're undertaken explicitly to advance and not, not in every case, but I'm speaking generally in about recent history here. They're undertaken specifically to defend and expand the, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, authority of the civilian society, which you find wanting. And um, I look, I'm not trying to answer this. I don't think it's, it's not a knock on the book at all. It's just, it is something that for me, doesn't take away from the kind of military experience you're describing and, and bringing out for the reader. And yet, but I'm not sure why it is that it doesn't take away, you know? Yeah, no, that's, I think that's a really good point. Um, and it, it sort of reminds me, I, I, I don't want to get too deeply into our, uh, the short story that we're, dis, uh, that we're gonna <laughs> discuss, but it, it, it reminds me in, in a way of, you know, there, there are, Jobs that are uh, like the military, like um, a, a miner, um, that have like their own alternative set of value systems. That's that's totally different from the world in which they're helping to create. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it. It's interesting too, Jake, when you talk about these reports that you're sending out. So they're sort of, you know what you're doing, this kind of tightly bound community that you're a part of when you're with a military unit. And then there's, you know, these, these reports that you're sending off that you, that are, you know, you feel are deceitful. Right. Um, and I was thinking about the, the, um, uh, section of the book on honor, right. And the importance of honor. And it seems like there's, you know, there, there are all sorts of reasons that honor is, is, um, deeply important in uh, the military in particular. Um, uh, uh, Scott writes, honor in the sense that I experienced it in the military more closely resembles an ongoing decision, an act of will, or perhaps faith that following the rules has significance beyond professional self-preservation. At the same time, the, the nature of the enterprise involves a certain amount of, of dishonor and it's, mm-hmm. um, and it's, um, something, you know, where, <laughs> where you're hooking with, you know, what your purpose is outside of, you know, this sort of like the, the community inside the, um, inside the unit. And then there's how that, that community hooks on to the broader society and the purpose for which you're ostensibly there which demands that you both be there and also lie about what you're doing. Yeah. You know, what was interesting about the honor section is Scott, you brought something out for me. I hadn't, um, that I hadn't understood about honor before, which is how much it is about time and time. Yeah, that was great. 
And that's a lot of the book is about what I, Phil, you used the phrase when we just got started. I think you said it's about being in time, something like that, which. Yeah. In a sort of deeper, richer sense of time. Yeah. Yeah. But like, that's what the book is about. Lest it come off as we're talking about it. Like it's a just sort of critical essay. It's about the experience of these things in time. Like in, Every chapter, and for me, the most vivid moments about, you know, the importance of boredom and, like, how boredom is the medium through which, like, the war, wartime boredom specifically is, like, the greatest canvas ever created. And it's all of your creative and erotic energies get suffused in this, like, waking dream into the boredom of deployment. Yeah. It's incredible. And uh, the smoking chapter, by the way, Scott talks in his book about another book called Smoking is Sublime, which is fantastic. One of the best, uh, one of the great works of the 20th century, as far as I'm concerned, very much also about this, uh, this idea of like temporality and existing. Yeah. Time. And with honor too, you know, Scott, draw that out a bit because it's, it was, it was a profound insight, I thought, one I hadn't really grappled with before. What is it that honor has to do with kind of time and temporality? Um, I can read the, that section from the book if that's a useful jumping off. Yeah, if, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> okay. All right. So honor isn't static. It's a dramatic and potentially reversible change orbiting a fixed identity. Honor requires time. Of course, in a single moment, it can be gained or reversed, but these moments more than accumulating cohere into a narrative. This is why honor is so closely associated with the epic, and that narrative coherence, this unfolding through time, is lacking in our contemporary li that, that it, lives, makes honor even more dis difficult for us to comprehend. Byung-Chul Han writes in The Scent of Time that the decay of time goes hand in hand with the rise of mass society and increasing uniformity. What he means by the decay of time is the vivisection of our lives into an infinity of present moments. And actually, I'm going to give one more quick, because you related this to boredom, Jake. And there's one other uh, uh, thing, uh, you know, after talking about how war is the most boring thing you can possibly comprehend. And so it makes you a connoisseur of boredom. War is boredom charged with moral purpose. It's that purpose which energizes the tedium, distinguishes boredom and war from the, the, from the boredom of the peaceful world. After the war, the problem isn't having nothing to do, but having nothing that seems worth doing. The boredom of war is simply a banal fact that lays on top of a formidable and captivating reservoir of vital commitments. The boredom of civilian life is the exact opposite, a mesmerizing husk, inadequately covering an infin infinite regression of banality. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I mean, that's like, it was very much my experience. And it was a, a, a devastating for years, you know? And that was something that I, I just had to outlast in a sense. That feeling was something I couldn't think of my way. You know, I tried to write my way out of it. The story I wrote uh, for Fire and Forget, Smile There, I These Everywhere, is very much about this, but. I couldn't get it out of myself. I just like I had to learn to live with civilian boredom again. It was very difficult. Yeah, it it is difficult. I mean, um, 
I think that's probably why uh, I made it the first chapter of the book. Is it's, it was, I think it was the first thing uh, that I really, the first big post-military experience that I really had when I um, came back to the civilian world was just like struggling with this sense of, um, uh, of you know, sort of like the, the the paradox of choice, but the choice is actually not meaning all that much, um, which isn't necessarily entirely true, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> um, I think it's I think it's importantly false, but it's understandable, right? Um, this sense that like civilian life is meaningless. I mean, that's I, I think you need to find meaning. I think there are all sorts of places within civilian life where you can be embedded within communal structures that are, have a sense of tradition and time, um, you know, uh, religious organizations being the most obvious, right. Um, uh, you know, (laughs) but, um, but it's, there's an intensity to war and it's, you know, it's about that, I think proximity to death, right. You know, one of the reasons that the, you know, the military infantryman symbol is not, pure campy silliness is because, you know, doing that in a time of war, there's this sort of sensibility that some of these people are going to die. Right. Mm. Um, because they have made this choice and undergone this ritual and been stamped as infantry in this way. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's goes back to the, the first manifesto we did with, um, Jeffrey Hill, no bloodless myth can hold. I mean, this is a, you know, the military myths are myths that are born out of blood. Right. Um, and so they become deeply, deeply imbued with meaning in that way. And then, you know, you go back into the civilian life and, uh, it's not just that there's a, a very different kind of, kind of, of, of ethic. It's not just that, you know, you talk about how honor is a, is an anti-utilitarian, um, value, right? Uh, whereas, you know, a lot of the modernity feels to have a kind of, atomistic, individualistic, utilitarian kind of ethic to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I like <laughs> have this sort of instinctive recoil against the effective altruists, uh, <laughs> even though they've done plenty of very good things. Um, I think because I just distrust that, that mode of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I have an instinctive recoil against men our age who didn't serve in the military. You know, it's <laughs> unfair, but I feel that. I mean, look, I, uh, outside of people I grew up with, um, I'm, you know, I, I have a hard time like, um, trusting, uh, I, I don't trust, you know, it's, uh, it's not entirely fair. It's whatever. You can say whatever you want about it, but it's, it is my first feeling. I, I can have other feelings after that that maybe put it in perspective or, or trump it or contextualize it. But it's my first feeling. And part of that feeling is like, who are you that you thought you were too good for this? You know, like that's part of it. Like, why, why did you think who gave like who excused you? You, you know, like or, or another way of putting that would be why did you think you had a choice? Like I know it's an I know it's a, a volunteer army, but like that's a the volunteer army is a trick question, you know. Like <laughs> you're supposed to say yes if you have any honor, which relates to the second part, which is that I felt you know 
for a long time, you know, family sort of changes this and having kids changes this in some ways. But I felt for a long time, like it I, was hard for me to expect a level of honor, not in the sense of high moral conduct necessarily, but in the sense of like a, um, a kind of, intransigent willingness to like stick to the code, you know, and like not sell somebody out that, um, I, I just found, I found it hard to expect that from people who hadn't, um, hadn't chosen to enlist. We know the other thing about the sort of, you know, the sense of honor going through, going through time is like, instead of a sort of infinite slices of, moments during which a person can be acting in a way that is sort of good or bad within a utilitarian framework, right? There's, there's a kind of, uh, longer process that involves like you can lose honor, you can regain it. And you sort of talk about this sort of process of redemption in, in, in a way that I thought was very interesting and powerful. But also like the final judgment can be deferred on it. Right. So yeah, instead of, I get, you know, to relate this to what I was trying to say, I guess a second ago, I guess it's also like uh, there's a certain way in which I expected people who hadn't served in the military to be much more susceptible to the fickle judgments of their contemporaries, you know, and like willing to acquiesce to something in order to, uh, to uh, like get a pat on the back in this second, you know, something instant. Whereas, you know, the the sense of honor is also the sense like what I do now, yes, I could recover from it, I could change it, but also it could dishonor me 10 years from now. You know, it's something that it's not fixed in stone, but it exists outside of that moment to moment, constant presentism. Right. I think that's why Byung-Chul Han sort of associates – um well, he doesn't necessarily associate um, honor with this, but I think this is why his sense of, of temporal movement and the way that I'm using it in relation to honor has a lot to do with um, narrative. So like, yeah. you know, honor requires narrative. It requires story. And I, I feel like we, we sort of, you know, I don't know, maybe I've been uh, to one note on uh, our contemporary society, but, you know, I, I feel like we, don't have time to build those sort of narrative structures. We don't give ourselves time. Um, Christopher Lash, you know, talked about life being so denuded that it, um, it becomes just a matter of like desires sated or unfulfilled. Um, but like honor to desire honor, it's, it's like a, it's almost like a transcendent desire, right? So like, it requires you to constantly be wanting it or like to constantly be in some sense unfinished or unfulfilled until you die. Uh, and even then, right there, there might still be a chance for you. But, um, but I think in that sense, I think that, um, honor relates to duration in the same way that like narrative relates to duration. Yeah. I think we maybe should move on to the story. Uh, this has been great. Um, we could probably keep talking about this book for a long time because uh, each chapter is just is just great. 
Um, uh, <laughs> I'll read one bit from the smoking chapter, maybe. Uh, the the death of the execution of Sir Walter Raleigh, Raleigh, that noble privateer who plagued the Spanish Main, the man who introduced Virginia tobacco to England, the gallant favorite of James's hated predecessor, symbol of the new pleasures and perspectives that the Elizabethan age had brought to the dour religious perspectives of the 16th century England, still smoking his pipe. Raleigh walked across the platform toward the chopping block, picked up the axe and said, this is sharp medicine, but it will cure all disease before he was decapitated with pipe still in mouth. Um, <laughs> there are lots of little asides. To that was the most that fun are, chapter to write of, a, of a, for sure. Yeah, that are just fantastic. Yeah. Um, and also I really missed but, uh, anything that gives me the opportunity to like indulge in smoking nostalgia. I, yeah, <laughs> that's basically what it was for me. Like I had quit smoking like a couple years prior and I was just really jonesing. Um, like I have to, I have to write this chapter. The only th- I say this all the time. It's like the only thing I really miss, you know, like I truly <laughs> miss smoking. Um, oh, you know what else? I, w- let's move on. And <laughs> right after I, I uh, last thought this, but one other thing, like speaking of temporality, you know, having read smoking is sublime. I, I had thought about cigarettes and temporality and also, having um, observed schizophrenics smoking and having observed people under the influence of LSD smoking and having been under the influence of LSD and and smoked, I understood smoking's relationship to time in some sense, but um, which is that it, it provides a experience of duration that puts you outside of the present while you're in the present. Um, and that that's powerful, but you know, something you had said in that chapter, I can't remember exactly what it was, Scott, but I thought sort of really clicked for me. And and it was this idea that like you, oh, I'll tell you what it was actually, there's a haunting scene where you're talking about the first time you saw a corpse in Iraq and the fact that, um, the adults in the neighborhood are standing around smoking and you light up a, a cigarette and the gunner's turret. And you're all smoking. And I thought to myself, like, part of what you're doing when you smoke in a situation like that is you're, like, trying to press record in a sense, Mm -hmm. even if you aren't quite aware of that. Like, the smoking is this act that sort of temporally grounds and records the experience and the narrative of your own life. Mm -hmm. And one thing I've realized after not smoking anymore is I don't actually have a replacement for that. There are not that many surrogate um, cigarettes that'll do that same thing. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, As, as a former smoker, I am still, still looking myself. So (laughs) if you find anything, let me know. (laughs) But you're right. It does. I think in the book I refer to it as like a pocket eternity. Like it, it, it simultaneously elevates you out of the moment uh, or gives you perspective on what's happening. And, and at the same time, it, it, you know, you're physically um, it sort of engages you physically in such a way that you're like more alert and more aware. So you're like further in the moment at the same time. Um, it's pretty interesting. All right. So Alistair McLeod, this was, the closing down of summer. This was my pick. Um, I wanted to read 
do this particular story uh, with you, Scott, because uh, your book made me think of it. So, uh, just first off, what did you guys what did you guys make of this? What did you think of it? Or, or should I should I get, let, let me give a plot summary? Um, here's the plot summary. There's a mining crew. They're a very good mining crew. They're uh, uh, Canadian, you know, Scottish, you know, descendants of you know Scots. Uh, uh, they are hanging out on a beach. They have a job in South Africa. Um, they've been hanging on the beach all summer. It's the end of the summer, so they get up and drive off. The end. That's basically the story. Um, and along the way, the the main character sort of thinks through his life um, as he's describing where they are and what their work entails. Um, what did you think? Um, I, I had never heard uh, of Alistair McLeod before, um, but I, you know, after you suggested it um, uh, and I read it, I, I thought it was uh, and really appropriate. I think I think it really sort of resonates with a lot of the themes that were that are in my book. Um, particularly, like I mentioned before, um, and I didn't want to get too into it at the time, but. Um, the narrator is really, um, like you said, he's a minor, but he's really sort of isolated um, from the larger culture um, that he is helping to maintain uh, by mining. Um, right. Which, which is really fascinating. Um, yeah, they're, they're on this like private beach that's connected to a family. You know, there are no tourists. They're sort of outside of commerce, right? They, they get moonshine that cannot be bought in white Javix containers from like fishermen who are, you know, you sort of get the sense they're also, you know, descendants of Scottish immigrants who are, um, you know, fishermen and, and, and are very distinct from the, uh, uh, the strange, movable, brilliant cities. You can see uh, uh, these like big, you know, fishery fleets that sit off the kind of coastal waters and have, have, are overfishing the uh, the seas that these families have been fishing for for generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's this kind of like lost world where you know um, he's a lot of it is about like the, the narrator has this deep sense of, of time, right? Like, you know, the, uh, the trout now are unlike the leaping spirited trout of spring. Um, you know, the trout at the end of, end of summer that, um, uh, their, you know, this deep sense of their physical bodies, you know, you, you talk about in, in the chapter on community about sort of physically being very present with other, other men and, and, and aware of their bodies. And there's a, this very keen understanding of, of their own physicality. Right. Um, and the way that the, the story is structured, there's a kind of like, there's these like imagistic chains that the narrator will go on. So there's like a little waterfall near the beach where these, you know, miners have been relaxing before heading out again. Um, 
and that waterfall is then contrasted with like the spraying shower nozzles and mining developments that, that spray them, you know, their bodies that when free of mud and grime and the singed hair smell of blasting powder are white almost to the color of milk or ivory, perhaps of lever- leprosy, too white to be quite healthy. And then now, like they've been sitting under the sun, the sun has given their skin color except for their scars, right? And then the scars lead into this sort of discussion back into time and back into the kind of history of each wound that they've received uh, over the course of their work. But it's all dying, right? I mean, uh, the, it's this yeah. sense of time and of um, not a wasting away, but a, a loss approaching permanence because the mining is going away and their their families from whom they're separated are, are not uh, – it's going to be lost. And, and they, are, they are going to be lost, you know, um, they and their way of life. Um, yeah, it, 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 including within their own families, right? It's like, in my own white house, my wife does her declining wash among an increasingly bewildering battery of appliances, right? He's sort of – Stunned that the earnings of the violence and dirt in which I make my living converted into such meticulous brightness, right? And he compares, you know, his home that he doesn't spend much time in with the rough, crude bunkhouses made of two-by-fours, sometimes roughly hammered together by ourselves that they live in when they're out on mining jobs. And he writes, Now my wife seems to have gone permanently into a world of avocado appliances and household cleanliness and vicarious experiences provided by the interminable soap operas that fill her television afternoons, while... Our sons will go to the universities to study dentistry and law and to become fatly affluent before they are 30. Um, while him and the men around him seem to be sinking deeper and deeper into the past. Um, and he wants to be able to communicate it. And then sort of the latter half of the story. Well, so there's, there's a discussion of, of death and burial, Right and the burial of his brother, and the burial of his father, which is, a, I thought, just a sort of stunning scene where, you know, he was talking about um, what it is to bury these men. First, to get the bodies out, death in the mines being uh, usually sort of breaking or shattering the corpses in some way, and then how the seasons matter, right? So, you know, they take the corpses home, and they bury them themselves, and so it makes a difference if they're burying in the cold ground of February or they're burying the corpses in the melting of winter snow in spring. Right. Um, it makes a difference if it's, if it's raining, not just because, you know, you show up to a burial plot where the, the, you know, the, the hole has already been dug for you and there's that like crane to lay it in, but because they're going to be doing it themselves. Right. Because they're, because they're miners. Right. And there's this sort of scene where he's burying the brother and they're burying him in the, in the, in the plot. Um, and, uh, it's raining and the wall breaks and the father's coffin comes sliding in on them as they're in the hole for the brother. And so they have to literally brace the father's coffin up with their backs in the pouring rain until they can bring in timbers to shore up the new grave. Um, and it's a sort of just like physical, (laughs) physical image of like this kind of weight of history and their connection to the dead um, that they're holding up and that, but that nobody else in their families are because they've told their sons to all do something else, something less dangerous, something easier. Mm -hmm. 
Jake, what do you make of the story? Uh, I liked a lot of the imagery. Um, no, I listen. You actually read what I thought was the, the line about the whiteness of their skin. I thought was probably the, like the most vivid image, and 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 I, and I liked the kind of um, I liked the image of them on the beach. Um, you know, which is this place away from home, but also what is less mine-like than a beach, you know, yeah. like men on a sun-washed beach. And I felt like it was, um, there was something too schematic about it. It was a bit too um, insistent on its themes. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was what. Uh, like the the passage you read about the the wife at home, you know, it felt like uh, felt like it felt like somebody other than the miner at the beach relating. Mm-hmm. Right, I didn't get the sense of that as the the kind of um, unmistakable voice of like a very particular person rooted in these experiences. I got the sense of somebody outside of these experiences conveying the relationship between these, the idea of this kind of person and the idea of that kind of person. So, I mean, I see why it worked here and I think it has its strengths, but it it felt too insistent in that way to me. Scott, you better jump in here, man. You're the yeah, right yeah. No, I no, I, I think I, I I get what you're saying, Jake. But I, I think that something that really s- kind of stood out to me on, only upon reading it um, a second time this morning was that I th- I think it, there's a sort of a wry sense of humor, um, right? That's sort of buried in what's otherwise kind of like lush language, and and you know, obviously it's trying to be uh trying to use this sense of ephemerality to conjure up a poignancy that you know i i feel like often works it sometimes doesn't but um but yeah i think it's there there are parts that are quite funny like you know he's uh, there's so many mentions of graves and graveyards and tombs and even like you know the the mining shaft becomes uh <laughs> becomes a, a a grave um and then uh, on page the bottom of page two or three, he he says, "I must not think too much of death and loss." I tell myself repeatedly, uh, you know. And he goes and he goes on this whole thing about like why he shouldn't be morbid, and you know, I don't know. And yeah, so uh, there these contradictions. I feel like they're um, they're very knowing, uh, and uh, I, I don't know. I thought they were, I thought it was it was it was fun. I, I like the bit where he's, he's he's talking about sex, right? So he's trying to exp- like. Figure oh, out the sex part was was funny way, too. Yeah. yeah, a way to talk about what he like. He wants his kids to understand like what he does, and he wants how articulate we are in the accomplishment of what we do, right? But the problem is that what what him and the men around him do is precisely what Scott is is talking about. It's these these physical things that are operating outside the level of language, right? And, um, and how, how do you get that across? 
he's talking about all these things that similar to, to what you're talking about in your book that are operating outside the level of language that are sort of deeply important, deeply human, but are about being inside of an experience and inside of community for their meaning. And that's why it's so like the, the miners sing uh, Gaelic songs, mm-hmm. right? And they go back to the Gaelic songs because they're so constant and unchanging and speak to us as the privately familiar. And also you kind of get the sense that like, one of the reasons that they all sing these songs is because they can't hear really well anymore because they're minors. Right. <laughs> and, um, and so they all know these, like these simple beats. And so then they try to have them, uh, sing at like festivals and stuff, uh, as like an example of the old ways. And they're the McKinner's minor McKinnon minors chorus. And they, they come out in their minors gear and he's like, it's a, as if we were parodies of ourselves. It was as if it were everything that songs should not be contrived and artificial and non-spontaneous and lacking in communication. Um, and so he deeply wants his children to understand what it is that he does and the meaning that is communicated, right? How articulate we are in what we do. And yet he fears that the only way to articulate, the only way to be able to, to understand that is to actually enter into the community, which is precisely what he doesn't want his children to do right. because it's a dying world, mm-hmm. because it's dangerous, because the lives of sort of fat affu- affluence that they're going to um, uh, are just going to be more comfortable and secure. Um, and so he ultimately compares it to sex. And, uh, and he talks about like before he'd ever had sex, his father had said, he, you know, he's only going to understand it once he'd actually done it. Right. Uh, and then, uh, he had read that sex was like flying, you know, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and he's like, I've long since abandoned any hope of describing the sexual act or having it described to me. Perhaps it is enough to know that it is not at all like flying, though I do not know what it is really like. I've never been told, nor can I in my turn tell, um, but then he says, but I would like somehow to show and tell the nature of my work and perhaps some of my entombed feelings to those that I would love if they would care to listen. Um, and, um, I don't know. I, I, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there's, there's like a, uh, there's an awareness that I feel like when I'm reading this, uh, uh, the sense that, um, McLeod knows that what he's trying to describe, it's impossible to describe what he's trying to describe. Um, yeah. And, and sort of writing from within that, um, sense of futility. Um, I think it makes for some, some really beautiful passages. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, it's a gorgeous story. And, and I mean, of course, part of the trick is that reading it, you, you feel like you actually understand quite a bit, Mm -hmm. um, of what's so important to him. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, while also having a sense of, of sort of things that are just kind of outside, um, outside your knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I also get the sense that, um, I mean, I, I understand, but Jake's complaint about, you know, being sort of too insistent with the themes, but in, in a way I kind of appreciated it because they all sort of, um, it was like the, the story was sort of in dialogue with itself, you know, um, it was like a yeah. Russian nesting doll of different forms of loss and change and 
um, different ways that we're unable to communicate our experiences with one another. Um, which again, it was just, you know, it's, there's the, the, and I actually think that Jake's wrong, right. That in that schematic way, like, cause you do have a sense that he's sort of, he's being overly sharp about his wife. And then he kind of doubles back on it later. Um, and like veterans talk in that schematic way about their families back home all the time. Right. And it's like that sort of initial hard edged, like, you know, her world of avocado appliances is, is very much, you know, related to things that I've heard people say before they then kind of go back into, okay, but like, here's the sort of longer tail relationship of, of the two of us as he starts to, you know, think more deeply through his relationship with his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, since Jake, um, since his audio cut out and, uh, he can only hear us, uh, I'll just say that Jake has, you know, no aesthetic sophistication and is wrong about so many short stories, this, and especially Andrew Dubis, the second's a father story. Uh, <laughs> 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 Jake, Jake has just typed in the chat wrong. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but it, it, it felt like a, um, you know, a non-military example of something very much related to, you know, to what you're talking about, right? It's a different set of rituals. It's a different, you know, it's a you know different job entirely, but it's bound by tradition uh, and uh, conflict with the modern world and uh, a deep sense of death as being really important, right? Like yeah. in your book, you talk about how um, how critical you know death is and human beings' relationship to uh, to death and the past. Um, and how tradition, you know, becomes, becomes born out of that, that, you know, Vico writes that the Latin humanitas comes from humando to bury. We fully come into ourselves as humans through the tradition of connecting ourselves viscerally with the past. Commenting on this, Robert Pogue Harrison writes that as human beings, we were born of the dead, of the regional ground they occupy, of the languages they inhabited, of the worlds they brought into being, of the many institutional, legal, cultural, and psychological legacies that through us connect them to the unborn. Without acknowledging this rich and enig- enigmatic link with the past, we objectify ourselves. Without ceremony, tradition becomes history. Human potentialities are flattened to a horizontal plane, and our deepest modes of connection die individually with each person, if they're ever discovered at all. And here in this story is a group of people who are deeply connected to the past, but have no future. Yeah. And I, I think, um, I, th- I think in, in some ways, um, there's sort of the narrators, well, and his, 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 um, fellow miners are, um, sustaining civilization, I guess. Uh, might be a way to put yeah. it in, in, in a couple of ways. One of them is literally mining, right? So like creating the, the material conditions necessary to sustain a civilization, but also in sort of this, um, kind of sad, elegiac sense of bearing witness to these passing things. I mean, these are like yeah. sort of cultural burials in a way, right? Like he understands this, this way of living, this way of mining is, is, um, is, is 
going away. It's fading away. It's the same thing with the fishermen that they meet, right? They sort of, um, they understand that, um, individual fishermen or families of fishermen are, aren't, that's not the way that the oceans are going to be fished anymore. So in a way there's this dual sense of maintaining civilization by, uh, doing the physical work of, of maintaining it, uh, which is dangerous. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you're, you come, you know, you're intimate with death and then in noticing, um, the passing of things is, 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 is sort of like, um, a, another way that they're, um, maintaining civilization. And I, and I think that, you know, I hadn't, um, just in comparing it to my book, I think that, um, there's a similar dynamic going on where, you know, I, I mean, like maybe this isn't necessarily quite literally true, but, um, a military is necessary for a large civilization. Uh, and, at the same time, you know, having the experiences that one has in the military, watching uh, people die, um, taking notice of the ephemerality of life is um, another way, I think, of sustaining civilization. But upon reading this, you know, thinking about what I said earlier about the impossibility of describing these things and thinking about what his dad told him, like, oh, it's, you know, sex, you just have to do it. You can't you know, just trust uh, what people say or, or look at porn, which is, you know, um, I don't know. I maybe would rather have, I don't know. <laughs> That's a, a kind of, kind of dubious advice, but anyway, so, but it, it kind of made me think that wonder if some of the things that I write about in my book are, are also, um, um, borderline incommunicable and, um, in, in some sense also, um, mm. I don't know. Maybe you guys appreciate it because you've had those experiences, but I wonder, you know, I wonder how, how far it goes with people who haven't, I don't know. My, my bias is always to think that things aren't as incommunicable <laughs> as we sometimes sort of flatter ourselves that they are. Um, but that's not too, uh, to undercut sometimes the the grave difficulty of trying to communicate, yeah, yeah. trying to communicate this. No, I think yeah. I think I'm on I think I'm on your side. I mean, I, I don't think I would have written the book if I, if I didn't have some hope. But uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't, yeah, you, you know, I think this short story really, really sort of um, made me wonder about the incommunicability of experience itself. All right, well, this has been excellent. And uh, any disagreements about the McLeod story, I think, only add to the brilliance of this podcast. So, Scott, thank you very much. Uh, it's a hell of a book. Did You Kill Anyone out uh, last year from Zero Press? Um, really appreciate having you here. And, Phil, as always, you remain Phil Cly. Till next time. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>